And turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, it is a joy to be with you. Greetings from the First Baptist Church of Lapeer. I know they're praying for you all, especially this morning, as I told them I'd be down here and uh, grateful uh, for Kenwood and the role, its role in my life. So I arrived at Kenwood as Jim arrived, and I was one of the first to head out. Uh, I was graduated uh, from Southern and then I uh, was ordained two days later, I think, and then moved that next week uh, and have been in ministry since then and just grateful for our time uh, at Kenwood and with Jim and Denny and their investment and myself and my wife. And uh, so it's a joy to be with you and especially on this occasion. I'd ask if you would uh, join me in prayer and then we'll look at verses 12 through 14, just a short familiar passage, some good reminders for us together. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we look now to your word, that you would convince us of your patience towards us and your care for us in Christ, and that you would help us to bend that out towards one another. We pray that you would help us as believers and Kenwood Baptist Church in particular to be a church marked by patient care for one another. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chicago's Gang Congregation Ordinance, probably not heard of it, maybe you're familiar with it, prohibited criminal street gang members from loitering in public places. So under the ordinance, if a police officer observed a person whom he reasonably believed to be a gang member loitering in a public place, with one or more other persons, he was to order them to disperse, and if they did not promptly obey such an order, they had violated the ordinance. That's from the Supreme Court summary. The Supreme Court said in this case that a law cannot be so vague that a person of ordinary intelligence cannot figure out what is innocent activity and what is illegal. So that was struck down. The issue was one of loitering. Can you just stand around? Is that okay or is it not okay? Can you wait idly without apparent purpose? I think in the church that can be an issue too. Christian, we might call it loitering. Kind of waiting around idly. In Thessalonica, there were some who were loitering. They were living, living idly and not serving as they ought. And so Paul's burden here is addressing them and not so much addressing the congregation. Okay, this is how you should deal with these kind of idle people. But, but more than that, this is how you should live so that you're no longer idle. This is, this is how you should pursue the Christian life and living it out in the context of the local church. So He's not saying so much, don't do nothing. He's saying, do this, or better, keep doing this. Look back in chapter 4, just so we get something for his tone in this letter. Chapter 4, verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live Quietly, 
to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, and as we instruct you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Maybe you've been tempted by Christian loitering at times. I know I've been in seasons of, of life where maybe I'm in a new place, maybe an uncomfortable place, uh, and it's just tempting to kind of disengage, to, to put things in neutral, and maybe even just rely on, on others, others feeding me and no longer feeding myself. Maybe you've been there in a place where you, in a season of waiting or maybe, maybe even mourning, begin to put things in neutral and, and loiter. Some maybe are tempted to do that in Louisville in particular. You came from out of town, you're here only for a time. Maybe you're tempted with that because you're struggling spiritually. Maybe even struggling spiritually while your husband is in seminary. Maybe you have more questions than answers right now. God doesn't want us to have any trouble figuring out what it is that we are to be doing. And our passage has some just simple reminders, just some, some good reminders, I think, for all of us, whether you are new to the faith or a seasoned Christian, whether you're training for ministry or feeling that you need to be ministered to this morning. Some good, simple reminders for us as we consider the local church, as we consider what it might look like. What are we, are, what are we to be about while we're waiting for the day of the Lord? How we might, what we might give our lives to that we might not be found loitering on our way to glory. He's going to paint a picture, especially in chapter 5, as he closes with these exhortations, as Mike read earlier, of, of the church as family. And we're very familiar with this imagery, but five times he addresses them, brothers. He urges them, as he did in the passage I read earlier in chapter 4 and elsewhere, brothers, brothers and sisters, family, I'm, I'm urging you, I'm calling you to live in accordance with this. So this morning, I, I want to just consider three points by way of kind of exhortation encouragement for you as a church. I'll give them to you now. And, and then we'll step through them in order. The first is, Kenwood elders, keep laboring for those under your care. Kenwood elders, keep laboring for those under your care. And then we'll see, Kenwood, respect those so laboring. And then finally, Kenwood, be patient with those in your midst. Be patient with those in your midst. Look again at 1 Corinthians 5.12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Kenwood elders, many of you consider friends, keep laboring for those under your care. This passage is addressing the whole church, but here in the middle of verse 12, he gives kind of a picture of what it is that pastors are to be doing. What is to be their labor? How are they to serve the people that God has called them to? He strikes one main note. It's the clearest note. You see it there in verse 12, labor among you. Verse 13, because of their work. So in a word, it's work. How are you to care for the flock that is among you? You are to labor. You are to work. This is ministerial labor. This is the difficult and exhausting task of unfolding God's word and caring for sheep week in and week out. 
And he's saying that the, the labor who consistently does the hard work of the ministry, who does it week after week, month after month, year after year, is the exact person who the church then is to respect. Notice that he says that, that they are among you. They're a part of the congregation. So the respect doesn't come from afar or online or through publishing books, but here particularly from those who are near, who know them best, who see their character week in and week out. So Jim and Denny, I, I know that you know better than I even that you have your critics and those in ministry will, but I hope that you have ears to hear, especially this morning, the gratitude of those who know you at your worst and at your best, and to receive their affirmation this morning, affirmation of this church full of brothers and sisters that are thanking God for you and your labor. Be easily encouraged this morning. So these laborers are among, but they're also over. They are over you in the Lord. So here I think he has two ideas in mind. They're caring or aiding the sheep, but they're also leading them. They're managing as well as caring, just as they do in their home. First Timothy chapter 3 says, so they do in the church. Not domineering, not dictating, but caring and leading. And all of this, he says, is in the Lord. That is in line with Christian character in accordance with his will. That just seems so obvious, but always timely. Because there are pastors who don't do it in the Lord. Not in accordance with his character. Not in accordance with his will. They may say Christ's truth, but they lack his character. They may exercise authority but not Christ-like care. So Paul himself honored those who gave this kind of care. He notes at the end of his letter to the Romans, those who are workers in the Lord, who worked hard in the Lord, mentioning them by name. So we're right this morning to mention Jim and Denny and the other elders here at Kenwood for their work, their labor in the Lord. They lead in the Lord. These people deserve our respect because not all lead in that way. Some were teaching and prophesying, and they weren't to despise that, but they were to test it. And having tested not only the prophecy, but also the leaders giving it, they are to respect those who do it in the Lord. Moving right along, verse 12, the third phrase here describing those who are to be respected is these laborers admonish you. They teach God's word, but more than that, they, they do it with an eye towards correction, towards straightening, towards helping. Of course, admonishing is not an optional extra in the Christian life. As you mature in a, as a Christian, you will find that God will again and again, maybe increasingly place you in roles where it is the norm. As a parent, it's part of our primary responsibility towards our children Leading in the church, Paul said again and again that he admonished with tears. He warned, admonishing. So Paul labored in the word and the care of souls and instruction and admonition with love and affection. So we are one with another as the church to admonish one another. Of course, this kind of correcting is hard. I think it's countercultural. It always is. Counter our simple hearts. 
but in our day, it's almost viewed as offensive, right? So we're happy to be convicted by a sermon, but for someone to correct us personally is seen as an entirely negative experience. And the New Testament says, no, that's actually a good experience, and it should be fairly normal amongst God's people. So a personal correction can seem to say maybe more, if it's coming from an elder, more about the elder, oh, he's that kind of pastor, than about the sin that he's seeking to gently correct. Of course, Paul elsewhere says, man, this admonition should not be harsh. He's not giving all the pastors a golden hammer and saying, okay, now look out there, everyone's a nail now, and, and you're supposed to go around and, and, and bop them. But there is, there is a, a fatherly aspect to this. Leon Morris put it this way. I think this is helpful. Though its tone is brotherly, it is big brotherly. That's the kind of admonition he's calling these laborers to. Of course, that's not what we want. We don't want a spiritual authority that's pursuing us when we least want to be pursued. We want a life coach that we can visit one hour a week and encourages us in the way we already want to go. We want space. And here, the encouragement, the exhortation to the elders in this church and every church is to pursue and at times even to admonish. So they do this publicly and privately, not with harsh words, not normally with some grand confrontational moment, but patiently, faithfully, big brotherly, we might say, admonishing. Jim and Denny, I've experienced this admonition through your preaching, uh, especially as I arrived in Louisville, where the Lord had me in my life, I needed my, my weak faith heart needed to hear Jim and Denny again and again express not only the truths of God's word, but in the preaching, their confidence in God's word. I'm grateful for that. And as I look back at their ministry in my life, uh, especially as I arrived first single and I got married uh, that first summer and, and Swamy joined me at Kenwood, uh, it was probab- it's probably more the questions that they asked me. They were probably just trying to be an inquisitive friend and be friendly to, to Ross. But uh, so often convicting, so often admonishing uh, me and, and grateful for it. Kenwood elders, keep laboring, keep working, keep serving, keep feeding and admonishing. Press in and press on. Second here in verses 13, or 12 and, and 13. Second point now, Kenwood, respect those so laboring. Respect those so laboring. So how is the congregation then to respond? What is our responsibility towards those in leadership over us? Here in Thessalonica, it was a young church, so I'm assuming by implication these are all new leaders, and whether you're new here to this church or you've been here and maybe there's new elders over you, what does it look like? How, how should we respond to those laboring not only in our midst, but for our spiritual good. And first he says, respect them. That's how he begins in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect. Perhaps he's suggesting that some weren't, or perhaps he's wisely preparing them for the temptation not to. Again, I've felt this, a temptation to respect other pastors, but not my own. Grateful for other preachers, but not the one God has given me not to respect the very men who labor in my midst. Who exactly? He doesn't emphasize the office here, but that's done elsewhere, or even the specific qualities. 
but rather his exhortation emphasizes a recognition and respect of those laboring. So it's because of their work. So when a church is seeking for elders in that church, we don't simply recognize men for the work. We recognize men for their work. They're already doing the work. We don't ask who could do this, so let's find someone to fill this role. Not merely. No, we ask who is doing this even now. So just like when we, we speak of this with missions, I think it's also wise in the church, right? We don't think that you're going to become someone different when you land another continent. You're going to become an evangelist once you head on the mission field. No, no, that's not how it works. So it is with this pastoral office. It's those who are already laboring that he says, those are whom you should recognize and respect. They're toiling for the needs of the church. Again, fairly obvious, but verse 12 says that this respect is congregation-specific. So it's a respect that we're called to give that would be necessarily different than the respect that we might give to that person who ministers to us, maybe in chapel or through the internet. It seems an implication of verse 12 is that reflecting on the work of men like Jim and Denny and the elders here at Kenwood is the God-ordained means for motivating the respect that you are called to give them. So struggling to give respect to whom it is due well, pause, even like we are this morning, and, and reflect. Look, look to them. Look at them. Notice their labor. Note their work. And then join others in respecting them in response. Then he gives a, a second command, a little more nuance here, beginning of verse 13. Not only are we to respect, we're to hold them in the highest regard. He says, esteem them very highly in love. So it's more than just acknowledging them. All right, I'm going to acknowledge that that's my leader I'm going to agree that he's an elder over me and serving me, maybe even admonishing me. Here he says, no, you need to respect them greatly. What a challenge for every church to guard against half-hearted esteeming. May Jim and Denny and Randall and Mike and Matt and Matt and John and Colin and Chris and Gabe be so far from lightly esteemed at Kenwood. Hold them in the highest regard, and he says, in love. So it's not based on tradition or just some basic kind of respect that is due them or their office, but no, it's in the, relation, it's in the context of, of a relationship of love. So you esteem, esteem them in love, and I'll just say, up in Lapeer, this is how I experience it. It's indirectly, oftentimes, so I feel most esteemed in love by my congregation when they care for and serve my wife and children. And one way that you can esteem the elders in this church well, I'm here I'm speaking to you, especially if you're, you're not an elder, not in an elder's family, is through maybe this avenue. Maybe get to know their kids, learn their names, mark their birthdays, celebrate their achievements, I rarely feel more esteemed in my labor than when I see folks at First Baptist uh, loving Swami and I and our kids. Uh, they do it so well. We have some that our kids call aunt and uncle. No relation. They just loved us at the beginning and they've kept loving us. And it is just such a joy. And I, and I anticipate that your pastors would experience the same as you continue to do that. This love 
for one's authority. That's what he's saying here. Love your authority. That's odd today, isn't it? Not just respect in some distant sense, but, but love. Not, oh, they're, they're my pastor or you know, they're, they're a professor. I look up to them, so it's only natural that I would esteem them highly. No, he says, as part of a relationship where they're among you, you know them, and there's love. So again, it's in response to their work. But we'd be mistaken if we then thought that this respect was only earned, right? You might be tempted to look at a particular elder and say, well, he hasn't earned my respect. I'd hold him in higher regard if, if only he would. Let us never forget get that respect and esteem are to be given, offered freely by the congregation to worthy workers in their midst. And the emphasis of this passage isn't on their worth, but on our obligation to esteem them. So let's guard against ingratitude. And I think this morning provides us an opportunity by reflecting on the labor of them, not perfectly, but persistently, faithfully among us. So praise God for their persistence, and then express affirmation, God-glorifying affirmation to these men. Before we move to verse 14, I want to give a word of caution. Respect, yes. Esteem very highly, Jim and Denny, yes. But protect them, and maybe especially their wives and their kids, by respecting and esteeming their godliness more than their giftedness. Esteem their godliness more than their giftedness. Some of you will know the name and maybe even the story of Darren Patrick. He pastored a large Acts 29 church in St. Louis until he no longer did. And he recently shared uh, some lessons down at Southeastern Seminary. And one in particular is worth learning. I've learned it even in the context where I serve. It is this, don't confuse giftedness with character. Maybe especially in Louisville. Don't confuse giftedness with character. Don't confuse fruitfulness with faithfulness. So our passage commands us to affirm faithful labor by those who do their work in line with Christ's character. Let's look now at the negative. We're not commanded to hold in highest regard the fruitfulness of the gifted, but the faithfulness of the godly. And there is a big difference. We aren't commanded to hold in highest regard the fruitfulness of the gifted, but the faithfulness of the godly. And at Kenwood, you guard your pastor's hearts well when you affirm their godliness more than their giftedness. And praise God, he's given you godly elders. So be encouraged by Denny's humility and thoughtfulness, not just with his work for CBMW, but with Susan and the kids. Be encouraged by Jim's love for God's word and confidence in God's goodness, not just in his sermons, but in his care for this church, especially when the waters are deepest. Keep an eye out, especially those who are preparing for ministry. Keep an eye out for their example much more than for their next book. As a pastor, you grow, and I've grown uh, through just lots of reps. Uh, in pastoral ministry, but let none of us confuse that with spiritual growth. I can confuse so easily my ability to maybe help someone hurting, maybe even in their marriage, with helping or even strengthening my own. 
Gavin Ortland put it this way, and I think this is a good encouragement. Don't encourage your pastors to confuse, sorry, don't encourage your pastor to confuse his ministry skill with his sanctification. Value those who are serving you by their example and their teaching of God's word and are willing even to admonish you. And we see at the end of verse 13 a reminder that where there is admonition in the church, and here in verse 12 you have the pastors, elders, overseers admonishing the congregation. In verse 14 you have the congregation admonishing one another. So right in the middle of that he reminds them, be at peace among yourselves. I think this command, though it's kind of separate grammatically. I think it falls under the heading, the first of our two headings are from verse 12. So, so we're to be at peace with one another. This is Christ's teaching in Mark 9, consistent throughout the New Testament. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Strive for peace with everyone, the author of Hebrews says. So the presence of this command reminds us that peace within the church is a virtue to be strived for and then to be lived out actively. John Stott paints this picture. I want to read just a brief quote from him. It's a sweet picture. He says, What attitude should the local congregation adopt toward its pastors? They are neither to despise them as if they are dis- uh, dispensable, nor to flatter or fawn on them as if they were popes or princes, but rather to respect them to hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. This combination of appreciation and affection will enable then pastors and people to live at peace with one another. Let's look now at our third point from verse 14. Kenwood, be patient with those in your midst. Be patient with those in your midst. The task of maintaining the health here at Kenwood does not fall to Jim and Denny or the elders exclusively. If you're a member, whether you're male or female, you have a responsibility here within the family to help others and to nuance your help to the particular needs and weaknesses of those in your midst. So wisdom in soul care should be the pursuit of each one of us. This assumes, I think, a a knowledge of one another. And I realize, again, in a transient church, Uh, that can be a real challenge. And so prioritize whatever season you're in and whether you feel like you're here short-term or long-time, prioritize relationships with those whom God has put in your congregation as much as you are able. This starts, I think, with the ministry of attendance. And so just encourage us, one another, to come, to gather as the church gathers, to be present, to get to know others in the gatherings, before and after, and then in between as much as we're able. Here in verse 12, he addresses three different, we might say, types of people, but really kind of overlapping categories. Several of these might be found in the same person. As we orient ourselves away from loitering and towards loving. Look again at verse, 12, or verse 14, while I read, I think, a good summary of it from your covenant. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each, one, over each other, and, and then here it is, faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. So this is where Paul begins. You see in verse 14 now, we urge you, brothers, 
admonish the idle. These are those who are disorderly. They've chosen not to respond to the apostles' teaching. They've not responded to their example. And we know that here in this context, there are those who don't see the necessity of, of, of working, even to provide. So they're disorderly, and as a result, they're, we might say, lazy. They are model Christian loiterers. That's who they are. And so we know even from 2 Thessalonians 3 that they continued in this, ignoring the teaching, ignoring the admonition that came from Paul and others, and even from the congregation as they obeyed this verse. But here he says, don't remain passive. When you see a member out of order, disordered, in unrepentant sin, we aren't to sit back and say, well, I wonder if the elders will notice. I wonder how they'll handle it. No, we pursue. At First Baptist of the Pier, I am grateful that the Lord has raised up uh, a handful of women who really get this and are often involved in sticky situations long before I even hear about them. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful for Meg and Dee and Gloria and other ladies that you do not know who are examples to me of what this looks like. Patient admonition. I love that idea. Patient with them all. So patient admonition. Giving room for repentance. Time to bear fruit in accordance with it. Avoiding one and done simplicity. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. No, no, no. This is someone who, who may walk up to another to admonish them and then, and then stays with them and walks beside them to encourage them patiently. How had God worked in your life bringing you to repentance except through patient admonition? It's what God has given me again and again, even as a Christian, patient admonition. It's what we're called to extend to others. Here he says, encourage the faint-hearted. So who are they? These are those who are discouraged. They're unsure. They're in the danger of throwing in the towel spiritually, as it were. Maybe they're suffering. Maybe they're experiencing a time of loss. And they're not to be warned, but encouraged. So less, here's what will happen if you give up. And more, let me encourage you. Let me minister the gospel to you so that you may not give up. Some churches admonish really well, but encourage very poorly. We may think, well, she's just lazy when really she's faint-hearted. He seems discouraged, but really he's living in habitual sin. And so we need the wisdom of this passage to know when to warn and when to comfort. Sometimes the same person at different times. Again, a reminder that we must know each other. If you're to know how to minister to someone, Paul says you've got to know who they are. It's not one size fits all. Matthew Henry asked this question at the end of his meditation on this passage. He says, we should not despise them but comfort them. And who knows what good a kind and comfortable word may do them? Who knows? Then he says, help the weak. We're not told who they are why they're weak, in what way. 
But he says you know, to take interest in them, pay attention to them, clear your calendar, pull up a chair, slow down. I think the image is, here is, is punchy, right? Christians show strong interest in the weak. Others may walk around them or over them, but we step down and seek to lift them up. One author put it this way, it's as if Paul wrote to the strong Christians, and maybe that's you here this morning, praise God, but he says, hold on to them, cling to them, even put your arm around them. What a picture, right? In the church, there's no kind of in unimportant, indifferent kind of stragglers. There's just fellow strugglers. So we welcome them into not just our church, but our lives and our homes and around our tables. This is a responsibility we all have. And again, we must not lean back, but lean in. Finally, he says, be patient with them all. What a difference our obedience to this exhortation, the end of verse 14, would make in our churches, in our relationships, in our parenting. Be patient. No matter who they are, we're to bear this fruit always in our relationships. Remembering our own struggles to grow. Someone asked John Piper what made him doubt God. And he said, how painfully slow the process of sanctification is in my own life. Mindful of how slow the process of sanctification has been in your life and in my life, what a sweet reminder to be patient with one another. Patient with them all, every one, even, even your elders. Be patient with those in your midst. Again, I've seen the sweetness of this patient care in the most unlikely of relationships there's a sweet family in our church, a large family that doesn't have a lot, a family that's had to lean on benevolent help from time to time, and to see them walk patiently and care lovingly for a family who, uh, he's a medical doctor, has been just so sweet uh, to see that. As we reflect on our own need for patience, the whole slowness of our own sanctification, we're reminded not just of ourselves, but of God and his care for us in Christ. When Paul here calls you to be patient with sinners, he's calling you to be truly godly because God has been nothing but patient with you. Indeed, patience has been and continues to be God's stance towards you. He's slow to anger, calling you to repentance. How has God been relating to you? I don't know in detail, but I promise you it's been patiently. He's provided you room and time that it might lead you, his kindness might lead you to repentance. Maybe you've never considered God's patient kindness in your life. Consider it now, respond to it rightly, and then extend it to others to the end. Always, God is merciful towards sinners, towards saints, towards others, towards you. He's not wringing his hands, wondering when you're going to get it. He's not saying, man, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. No, he's pursuing you in a thousand little ways so that you might get it now and respond now and repent now and trust him now and then lean in and not loiter 
on your journey to glory. Kenwood elders, keep laboring for those under your care. Kenwood Church, respect those so laboring and be patient with each in your midst. John Stott again says, happy is the church family in which pastors and people recognize that God calls different believers to different ministries, exercise their own ministries with diligence and humility, and give to others the respect and love which their God-appointed labor demands. They will live in peace with each other. As we seek not to loiter on our way to glory and call others to journey with us, what a joy it is as a local church to see one another to the river's edge. To weep, to rejoice, and to continue journeying on together. That's my prayer for you. Let's close in prayer now. Father God, I pray that peace would continue to rest on this church as it seeks to respect and esteem highly, as well as patiently love and care for each in its midst. We thank you for your patient, loving care towards us in Christ. Father God, we pray that we would reflect on that and extend that out towards others. We give you all the praise and we pray these things in Jesus' name.